0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody. Yep, we are in the month of August. Yeah, good. I like that. Uh, Looking forward to school. Is that the deal? (laughs) College football, looking forward to that, maybe? No. (laughs) We're going to do something a little different uh, with our our services come September. Um, Instead of having a Saturday night service, and we, we put that there to try to alleviate Uh, some of the pressure points in the Sunday mornings. Um, It didn't really uh, serve that in that well. So instead of having a Saturday night service, we're gonna have a Sunday evening service that starts around 5 (laughs) p.m. I said around 5 (laughs) p.m. At 5 p.m. 5 p.m. crossroads time. And then um, we won't have the Saturday night service. So we'll see how that goes. Some of you in this service need to think about that, though. Um, Okay. We are done with the Beatitudes, and now we're going to step into another part of the sermon on the mount, this sermon that Jesus preached, the greatest sermon ever preached, recorded in Matthew 5 to 7. We're going to step now into a piece that's right in the heart of this sermon that we typically call the Lord's Prayer. And for the remainder of the summer, we're going to unpack this prayer. And then when we come to September, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. So that's the game plan. You can start studying Matthew 5 to 7. Uh, But for this morning, turn your Bibles to Matthew 6. I want you to see the first two ver- words of chapter six and then we'll start reading in verse seven and eight. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Some of your Bibles have one word that I want you to see and some of them have two words. Uh, be careful. Does anybody have another word? Beware. Beware. Watch out. Interesting. Verse seven. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling. (laughs) It's quite a word. Don't keep on babbling like the pagans. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then Is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We know this prayer. We're going to look at uh, verses 9 and 10 today. You may be seated. Before we get into this more, let's just start, though, with this basic question, what is prayer? What does it mean to pray? I think one of the most basic themes of of the Bible that we, we often miss is just, God's longing to be with us, to live with us, to walk with us. Uh, God, from the very beginning, right there in Eden, he's invited the human race in to talk, uh, to be together, to to walk together. And in essence, that's that's what prayer is. I mean, I'm married. I've been married for uh, 20, ah, I should have asked Lily. (laughs) I'm gonna take a good guess though, right now. 26 years. 26 years, yes. Is it 27? How do you know? Oh, that's right, we have the same anniversary. <laughs> that's embarrassing right now, that someone knows how long I've been married more than I do. Should we all just be dismissed and go to the lake right now or not? Anyway, talking about marriage, um, you know, Libby and I, I mean, this is what marriage is. We're, we're, we're two best friends that, that do life together. We talk to each other. We listen to each other. We dialogue, uh, not just a few times, but, but really all day, every day, whether it's texting the moment we get up in the, in the morning, having coffee together, uh, phone calls, uh, literally walking together, um, that, that's a typical day in our marriage. And I didn't describe anything that that's abnormal. I mean, if you're married, that, that's probably a lot what your marriage looks like. That's what marriage is. It's, it's, it's two best friends who do life together. It's a picture of prayer. And we've made prayer into this religious, uh, this, this ritual Prayer is simply talking to God, listening to God, God talking to us, God listening to us. In fact, the the Jewish people talk about this word kavanah uh, when, when, when they talk about prayer, when they think about prayer. Kavanah simply means the state of one's heart. Uh, because they believe that prayer absolutely begins with just that, with kavanah, with, with, with the state of, of, of your heart. That, that prayer itself isn't even words. It's, it, it's the state of our heart towards God. Because God knows our hearts. He sees our hearts. He listens to our hearts. In fact, there's a story that's told about this great rabbi, Shem Tov, he approached the synagogue one day with his disciples and they got to the door and he got, opened it and then just turned around. And he said to his disciples, too many prayers in there. And his disciples responded, isn't a room full of prayer a good thing? To which he then said to them, He says, all the prayers, though, are stuck in that building, and none are going up to heaven. There's a lot of words, but no kavanah. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he tells the parable of the Pharisee and the the tax collector. One a righteous man, one a sinner. One stood before God with with this long, lengthy prayer in the center of the room, and, and the other... Uh, in a quiet place in the corner just fell to his knees and beat his breast. And Jesus said, God heard one prayer. The prayer of the sinner. He had kavanah. Even here, the, the Lord's prayer, we, we, we can't divorce it from its context. Um, when, you, when you know this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just been talking about about sin and and kind of the true nature of of, of sin, what it really is. I mean all those times where he says, You've heard it was said, uh, but I say to you, and, and, and he goes through this, You've heard it was said, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, uh, do not get divorced. Um, but, but he essentially then says, But I say to you, sin is not just bad behavior. He says, Sin is bad intentions, it's our heart. And now he moves into the things that I think we would classify as as good behaviors, things like prayer, fasting, social justice. And the first word, which is why I highlight it, was beware, be careful. Of what? Underneath those virtuous, praiseworthy endeavors can a lot of times be our most hideous sin. The sin of pride, the sin of self-exaltation, self-praise. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. I think I have this on a PowerPoint quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, is one of the best scholars on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, we tend to think of sin as we see it in it's rags in the gutters of life. We look at a drunkard, poor fellow, and we say, there is sin. That is sin. But that is not the essence of sin. He says, to have a real picture and a true understanding of sin, you must look at some great saint, some unusually devout and devoted man. Look at him thereupon on his knees in the very presence of God. Even there, self is intruding itself and the temptation is for him to think about himself, to think pleasantly and pleasurably about himself and really to be worshiping himself rather than God. That, not the other, is the true picture of sin. I would have to say as a pastor, this is one of the things that I've really had to confront in my own life is so much of what I do, I guess people could classify it as good, as spiritual. But I know better than anybody else that my most hideous sin oftentimes lies not underneath my bad behavior, but but, but underneath my good stuff. In fact, I remember one time John Piper, uh, he 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 taught at a conference and as he walked to the stage, uh, the whole place just stood up and and gave him a standing ovation and John Piper just started preaching but about halfway through, uh, he kind of just spanked everybody and he just said, look, the sentiments of pride. Oh, he said, be careful of who you give a standing ovation to because the sentiments of pride lie within every human heart. In a sense, he was saying, beware to his own heart. Now listen, this would never be my first word on prayer. And anyone I've ever talked, heard talk on prayer, they just run run into like how awesome prayer is and how we need to do it. But Jesus' first word is, beware, beware. Only Jesus. That's why we listen to him. Now, the first thing that Jesus wants us to know from the Lord's prayer is who we're conversing with. Let me ask you, do you ever get a text? It's from someone who's not in your context. So you're just like, who is this? But rather than just texting back, who is this? You think that if you like enter into a texting dialogue that over time you'll figure it out. I've done this many times. Only to finally get to that place where I have to finally ask, who is this? (laughs) Some of us pray. And we don't even know who we're talking to. This is what Jesus starts with. He says, when you pray, say, our Father, who is in heaven... Holy is your name. The first thing Jesus wants us to know is that God has a name. I mean, that already makes God uh, not just some force, let the force be with you, but that means God is a personal God. Uh, Now, the Jews of Jesus' day knew the personal name of God. It was the name that God gave Moses. It it was the name Yahweh, from which we get Jehovah. Jehovah. And they so revered this name that they didn't ever speak it. It was called the unutterable name of God. And they they replaced Yahweh wherever it was in the text or whenever they were going to speak it with the Hebrew Hashem. Hashem simply, simply means the name. Now before you criticize them for this, thinking they're all like so paranoid and uptight, um, I want you to see what 's driving this. Uh, remember, a name to them is so much more than a label. Uh, a name spells out the essence of, of of who someone is. The essence of who God is is holy, holy, holy. so Lord God Almighty and you know what holy means? Holy simply means to be. Set apart, which is why the Bible speaks about a lot of things being holy. Uh, cups and dishes in a temple, we're, we're holy. Um, there's holy spaces. There, there's holy days uh, that we call holidays. Um, God's people are, are called to be a holy people. It simply means that, that all of these things are simply set apart as special. But all this set-apartness is something that is attributed to them by God. It, it's not something that in essence they are. But with God, this is who he is. He is holy. He is so indescribably other. He's so Beyond us, even as I'm trying to articulate this, words can't even begin to come close. That's why creation helps us with this. David, one night, when he was looking up at the stars, just in all its awe, it made him think about how great God was, how set apart, how holy other God was. He says, God, in light of this, who am I? Why do you even care about me? Jesus teaches us to pray. Pray, holy is your name. We need to know that the one that we're talking to, he's so beyond us. He's in heaven and his name is holy. Do we approach God this way? When we talk to God, when we talk about God, When we pray to God, when we sing to God, and sometimes I think we're just kind of casual, flippant. Do we give Him just this awesome wonder that He deserves? But now, see this by what name? does Jesus teach us to actually address this holy God? Father. Just think about that. The creator of the the galaxies, of the universe, wants us to call him Father. Jesus always refers to God as Father. Father. In fact, in the Hebrew, it would have been even less formal than that. It was Abba. Uh, I remember my, my first day in Israel when we lived there for a semester, I went out to dinner one night and I was sitting there and there's this Jewish family having dinner kind of right next to me. Uh, there's this little two-year-old girl sitting on a chair with no armrests and she just fell off, hit the ground, long pause, and then ah, the cry came out you know what it was? Abba. That was the first moment where I really like, that's, who God, that's what God wants to call him. And listen, th- this doesn't in any way diminish God because as creator, God owns us. As king, God rules us. But he's more than these things to us the king and the creator of the universe is our father. This is what changes my heart by melting my heart. I I I have an earthly father um, who I adore. I know he adores me. He believes in me. Uh, Even when I preach, sometimes I think, is my dad here? Uh, it's just, it's, it's in the back of my mind. Uh, then 27 years ago, <laughs> I got married and God brought another amazing father into my life who loves me, adores me, I adore him. And, and, and why do I say all of this? Because our hearts were made to know the love of our fathers. And, and we have an idea of, of, of what our, our fathers should be um, because this is why some of you are angry, this is why some of you are bitter right now because you didn't get that kind of father in your life. And in a sense, every single one of us to some degree right now has a father wound. But here's what the Bible teaches. That we have a God who made us for himself. To not just know him as Lord and King, but to know him as as our father. And, and, and And if we never know him that, our hearts will still remain in this broken, thirsty state. And think about what all this says about us when when, when we know God this way, when we know God as our father, it it means that that at the core of our identities, we're not our jobs, we're not our professions, um, we're not even our callings, whether it be husband or wife or or father or mother, Um, at the core of our being, we are sons and daughters and the creator of the universe is our Father. I mean, that changes everything. I mean, the idea of the holiness of God, I'll be honest, that just like crushes me to the ground. Woe is me. But this idea that God is my Father, it exalts me to the skies. changes us. And here's the deal. Our view of God as father radically affects how we talk to him. And I know so many Christians approach God like he's the big boss upstairs. Well, think about what bosses are. Bosses are people that we have to please. Bosses are people that we have to work hard for. Bosses are people that we have to perform for. That's why there's performance reviews. That's what, that's what a boss is. And if you have that idea in your mind about God, think about how this is gonna get played out then in prayer. Prayer then has become a, a technique. It, it, it's gonna become something that you have to do just right. I how, have how to say just the right words, how you have to perform your prayer well enough and not just your prayer, but your life. Life life then becomes a performance because God's only gonna listen to me if I perform well enough. That's what Jesus is getting at in the verses leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. But we'll leave that for when we study it later. The pagans, he says, they're going to be heard because of all this meaningless repetition. If, if, if we just can perform this well enough, if we pray long enough, if, loud enough, if, if, if we do it in a public place, maybe then God will hear us. God is not a boss, God is a father who adores us. He cherishes us, and he is unconditionally committed to us. Do you know that? Because I do know this as a father. Um, I mean, sometimes my kids are good. Sometimes my kids are not so good. (laughs) And here's what I know as a father, is that it's actually when my kids are not so good that they they don't get less of my affection. They they, they actually get more of my affection. They don't get less of my time. They, They get more of my time. They don't get less of my love. They almost get more of my love Because they're my kids. And my heart is just, it's bound to them. And I'm only describing something that is but a fraction of God's heart towards us. God as our father means that he adores us, he cherishes us more than we could ever imagine, which is why we can all rest right now, just be at ease. Stop being so touchy. Stop always feeling the need to defend yourself. Stop feeling like you can't fail. God is our father and he loves us. And and to be honest, this, this is why I don't really get fasting. Um, Fasting, especially when you, do, you fast to get God to do some things, this just feels so much like, like God is now my boss. Because like, I would never do that with my dad. I'd never approach him that way. That's why Jesus says, just ask me. Just seek me. Just, just knock on my door. Just ask for help. I'm a father, and I care for you. this prayer, um, not only does Jesus teach us how to approach God and and tell us who God is, but it goes deeper than this. Uh, The Lord's Prayer provides a window into God's heart. It shows us what God cares about. And sometimes I think we so care about our own selves that we don't even stop to think, what is it that God actually cares about? And this prayer leads us into that. And When we pray this prayer, our hearts actually conform uh, to God's heart. What does God care about? It's pretty simple. God cares about the world. Every square inch of it. Jesus teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Where? Finish it on earth, on earth. And this is what this prayer then means. It means that God cares about souls, human souls. It also means that God cares about poverty. God cares about injustice. It means that he cares about the environment. I don't need global warming to motivate me to care about the environment. It's fear-driven. We're love-driven. God loves the world. I think this is where a lot of Christians have missed it. Um, we, we almost think the whole goal of, 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 of God and, and the story of the Bible is to get us out of earth for a place like heaven when the Bible is always talking Um, the other direction. Heaven is always coming down. I mean, God's aim has never been to throw the world away like a piece of garbage. Please stop and think about this. The universe is his artwork. It's why we call it creation. It's why we call him the creator. And when the creator completed creation, he looked at it all and said, this is really good. For God so loves the world. In this world that He loves so much, He actually entrusted it to creatures made in His image, little replicas of God, God like earth, earthlings. Uh, basically, God says, here's the keys of my universe. Enjoy it, but don't just enjoy it. Rule it and subdue it. Again, in Psalm 8, when David is uh, looking at the stars and, and says, God, who am I? Um, why, why do you care about me? Uh, all of a sudden, this, this comes to his, to his mind, but you have made me a little less than yourself. Do you know that? We're made a little less than God. God. And he keeps going and he says, and you have crowned me with glory and honor. All the dignity that is in God is is now invested in us. And and David keeps going. And everything that you made is under my feet. To take care of it. Now theologians call, this, this calling that's on our lives, the creation mandate. In fact, it's called the Great Commission of the Old Testament. In fact, there are so many Christians today who think the, the, the uh, creation mandate is obsolete because they think the Old Testament is obsolete, but not at this church. So when God tells Adam and Eve and us and humanity uh, to rule it, m- rule means to be responsible. It's to be over something, not for the purpose of power, but over that thing because you're responsible for that thing. And when God says subdue it, that word subdue literally means to beat something into shape. And this is why God made Adam and Eve in his image. It's it's to this end. They were called to steward every inch of God's creation to cause it to flourish. Not just maintain it, but to flourish for the glory of God. Every human life, every tree, every river, every neighborhood. The reason why there isn't flourishing, why there's so much chaos, is because we humans like Adam and Eve We want to steward the earth for ourselves. We want to do it for our glory. We want the power, not the responsibility. We want to gain the world, but we don't want God. This is why creation is in disorder. This is why it it, it feels like the world is rebelling against us, why the world is rebelling against itself. Um, It's because we humans aren't who we are in doing what we are called to be. But this is why God in Christ, why he's remaking us, why he is restoring the image of God within us. It's it's not so we can just go find a comfortable piece of real estate on earth and wait for heaven, but it's so that we can partner with God to unleash heaven upon earth. Because God's heart is for this earth that it would become a perfect reflection of heaven and then when you now add that to this prayer prayer becomes the place or the vehicle or the means by which we bring heaven to earth so when we pray your kingdom come God may your rule be unleashed upon the chaos so when we pray your will be done that we're actually beating the world into the shape that God intended it to be. This is amazing. To think that our prayers actually unleash the kingdom of God. That our prayers actually conform our world, our cities, our neighborhoods, our marriages, our relationships, our lives to God's will. Do you believe that? You only believe that to the extent that you're praying this prayer. To the extent that you believe that prayer actually affects things. That when we pray, may your kingdom come. And you can just fill in the blank. It can be anything from the brokenness in our world to the brokenness in our city, to the brokenness in my neighbor, to the brokenness in my own life. Are we praying and I know some of you, this raises a philosophical question: Why doesn't God just heal the world himself? And of course, we know that God could, could, could do this, but, but this is what you learn when you really invest yourself in the narrative of the text is how much God wants to redeem and restore and, and repair the world with us. What's the partner? He wants to partner with the people. And I don't even think we understand how empowered we are, uh, not because of the strength that we have, but because of the strength and the authority that God has placed with us, in us. That when we pray, may your kingdom come, his authority unleashed when we pray your will be done I mean just even think about what this means this means prayer is not about me this means prayer is not about my agenda prayer prayer is not another way of just getting God to serve me to serve my wants to serve my desires but prayer is now a way in which my heart gets aligned with God's heart you ever heard of the prayer of Jabez This little verse in 1 Chronicles 4, verse 10. Jabez called upon the God of Israel saying, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm so that might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Notice how the personal pronouns are so different in this prayer versus the Lord's prayer where it's all about our and you, and this is all about me and my. Bruce Wilkinson wrote a little book, this one little verse, how God pretty much can make you healthy and wealthy, Um, sold millions of copies because we love this prayer. But here's the thing, context always matters. Jabez, his name itself means pain. And then when you read the verse before, you find out that his mother gave him that name because as she says, I bore Jabez in pain. You also realize the kid has no father. So so Jabez is born into a broken family, into a world of pain. But then you come to verse 10 and verse 10 shows us how, how Jabez prayed his way out of that. And it shows us the power of prayer. Prayer can change things. Prayer affects things. But not my will be done. Your will be done. Prayer is not the cry for God to enlarge my territory, my bank account, make my life good. Prayer is the desperate cry to God for his kingdom to come to earth. That God would reclaim his world, that God would reclaim nations and cities and neighborhoods, that God would reclaim our schools, that God would reclaim marriages, that God would reclaim every last inch of the world that he loves. And you know what's so exciting about this petition? We actually have the answer to this prayer. In the last two chapters of our Bible, read Revelation 21 and 22 today. Heaven one day will become earth, and earth one one day will become heaven, and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. So let's pray this prayer. One last thought. Jesus didn't just teach this prayer. He prayed it. In Gethsemane, in that most horrific place in the life of Jesus, when God placed before him the cup, God essentially said to Jesus, Son, for my kingdom, that my grace would be poured out onto the world to heal it. You must drink this cup, the cup of my justice. My wrath for all sin. Would you drink it? We know, Jesus agonized over this cup in prayer. God, would you please take this cup from me? Could there be another way? But he ended the prayer by praying the Lord's prayer. Father, not my will, but your will be done. He prayed this prayer. And in a sense, he became this prayer so that when you and I enter this prayer, we can be changed by it. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up. How about right now, for a few moments, we step into this prayer? Whatever's on your heart, let's make this a house of prayer. Finish the phrase, may your kingdom come to to whatever God puts on your heart. Just stand it up right now. And I'll start. God, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. May your kingdom come to the city of Grand Rapids for the fame of your Christ.